driven by a commitment to advancing interoperability in healthcare and making a meaningful impact on the lives of millions, Point Click Care is developing solutions to real-world problems to mend a fragmented care system to enable faster, better decision-making and improved clinical outcomes. Learn more at www.pointclickcare.com. Point Click Care is a proud sector partner of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. If we don't invest in an aging services infrastructure, the way we invest in bridges and roads, we will find ourselves back to where we were at the beginning of this pandemic, which is in a dreadful place. This is Coming of Age, meeting the needs of our aging population a podcast about how we can better support our seniors. I'm your host, Donna Duncan. I am also the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents about 70% of long-term care homes in Ontario, Canada. In our podcast so far, we've discussed many of the current challenges facing long-term care and seniors care today, while highlighting how we can reimagine care for an aging population. And through these discussions, one clear message emerges. It's time for leaders to take action. So what next steps need to be taken? How can we learn from seniors' care systems around the globe to better support our staff to provide the best experience and the best care possible to our seniors? In this episode, I'm speaking with Katie Smith-Slow, the Executive Director of the Global Aging Network, an international community of individuals and organizations dedicated to improving quality of life for people as they age. Katie is also the CEO of Leading Age, a seniors advocacy organization representing more than 5,000 seniors care providers across the United States. Today, we'll discuss what the ideal future of aging will look like and how as leaders, we can work together to get there. Katie, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thanks, Donna. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be um, with you. And as always, we're delighted to have you join us today. And especially given the various hats that you wear as president and CEO of Leading Age, representing more than 5,000 members across the United States, as the executive director of the Global Aging Network that uh, I've been privileged to work with you on in sharing our voices over the past 15 months through the pandemic and, and bringing a, a global and international perspective, as well as uh, I know you bring a bit of a Canadian perspective as well with the work that you do on the board of the Center. Center for Brain Health Innovation that's based in Toronto, Canada. So it's been a harrowing almost a year and a half now as we've worked through the, the COVID-19 pandemic and would really welcome your sharing your perspectives on, on the challenges that seniors care and age care has faced over the past year and would love to find out if anything's that happened that surprised you as well. This coronavirus we knew from the outset was going to have a disproportionate impact on older adults and those with underlying health conditions. And that proved to be the case over and over and over. So the challenges for organizations that provide care and services to older adults were just were enormous and they were relentless. And that is true regardless of country. 
even regardless of the type of services uh, that an organization provides. As a globe, we were unprepared for this. We were unprepared for how to manage the risk, how to protect the lives, how to keep people safe, how to access the kinds of protective equipment we needed. And that just exacerbated the challenges of a very vicious virus. You know, I don't, I don't know that we've experienced an infectious disease that is, is often asymptomatic. You know, with the flu every year, you have symptoms and we know immediately how to treat it. And with this coronavirus being asymptomatic, it was often hard to know where it was in your community and whether it was even in your community. So as organizations that provide services to older adults, they were facing with just enormously steep challenges and they're continuing to face steep challenges. Yeah, it really has been relentless uh, to your point, and, and we really were unprepared. As you reflect, is, were there any states or, or any countries who got it better? And what would they have done differently that, that made it better? Well, I think the countries that experienced the SARS virus knew, uh, had a deeper understanding or a more instinctive understanding to protect a whole population from something that is vicious, like coronavirus was. So the wearing of masks, the social distancing became was very natural in those environments, Japan, Korea, but for the rest of the world where we hadn't had that experience, this was all sort of new. How do we suddenly adapt as as citizens to wearing masks all the time? How do we think about the six-foot social distancing? What does that look like? How do we, running a congregate community of older, frail adults, think about keeping people as safe as possible when we don't stockpile PPE, for example, and we don't have access to testing to test everybody who comes and goes. And we have three shifts of staff coming in and out every day, going back into their communities. Who knows what they're bringing in, totally unwittingly. So we we learned quickly and we learned hard. So as we think about the pandemic and its impact on long-term care systems and care homes around the world and the lessons that we can take from those homes that were not as hard hit by COVID-19. So much of it was about geography. Australia did well. So much of it was about countries who were better prepared because they'd been through SARS. So Korea uh, and South Asia and Asia. So much of it is about the size of the homes. We learned that those countries who had homes that were smaller with individual rooms were less hard hit. And those with older homes with more communal living were more challenged. And we learned that those who learn from others did better. And therein lies our opportunity. So with these insights in mind, Katie and I discussed the impact of the pandemic across the globe on the mental health of seniors, their families, and staff in long-term care homes, and the impact that hard-hit homes had on those who cared for and lived in long-term care homes. And one of the areas I'd love to tease out a bit is, uh, you you know, as you mentioned, we, we learned quickly and we learned hard. As we watched it in Canada, we... Even today, we keep thinking we're two months behind the United Kingdom in terms of where we are and what's about to hit. 
And where we saw some differences, we all went down into complete total lockdown in the first wave, completely shutting people out of our long-term care homes where we had care homes. But our seniors really paid a price on that. What are your thoughts on the impact that that is going to have on our seniors over the next year or more as we think about recovery, that the role of social isolation, but also trauma? You know, I think what we were forced to do is to try to find a balance between safety and rights. And we erred on the side of safety. Perhaps that was the right thing to do in a pandemic with a virus that was so deadly. But I think to your point, it has had long-term impact on people being isolated from friends, from family, sometimes from the caregivers that they had grown to love and respect so much. So I think we will see some long-term implications just for people's health and wellness. I think there'll be fear of being alone again. There'll be fear of, of isolation. That said, I think you know, based on my observation of what provider organizations did, they bent over backwards to try to connect family with older adults who were isolated as best they could using technology in particular. It wasn't always easy. It wasn't always smooth. It's certainly not perfect. But they recognized that family members are part of the care team. They are part of that care team. They're in and out of communities all the time. And to suddenly shut them off was devastating. But once communities began to open up, the video, the pictures of families reuniting was just heartwarming, absolutely heartwarming people who had been separated for a year or more. You know, I think there are some serious lingering challenges with mental wellness that will be with us for a long time. And it's not just the residents. Um, It it is the staff themselves, what they experienced in trying to protect, uh, come to work every day, putting their lives at risk, trying to protect residents from the virus, experiencing death with more frequency than they've ever had before with no time to grieve. And often with our direct care workers, they've had a lot of trauma in their lives. So this is trauma on top of trauma. And we, I think as a sector, have a huge obligation to really figure out how do we continue to address these these mental wellness issues. It's so interesting when you when you talk about the outcome and as we're moving hopefully towards recovery, the reality is our lack of preparedness was almost a the, the stigma around how we treat and support our seniors and our aging population, our older society members who we've we've not served them well. We haven't invested in them. It, you know, I've I've heard you talk about we invest in what we value, and you've said uh, we clearly did not value our seniors. I absolutely stand by that, and I think that's really true. I also think we don't value our direct care workers. So during the coronavirus, they were going from one community where there may have been an outbreak to another community where they have may have been an outbreak, or to provide home health in somebody's home, and therefore taking this deadly virus with them often. Where can we start? Like, what can we we do today to start to uh, address these issues and and really be thoughtful and purposeful uh, about steps that will make sure that this never happens again? 
You know, I think we need to address it on a number of levels. And I think you're right. I, I view us, I think right now, or as we come out of this, we're at an inflection point. And from a policy level, I think it's incumbent upon governments to look at what kind of investment they haven't made and what kind of investment they need to make to support societies that are rapidly aging. In the United States, we're having a big debate now about investing in our infrastructure. And I have made the argument time and again that aging services are part of a nation's infrastructure. The care economy is part of a country's overall economy. And if we don't invest in an aging services infrastructure, the way we invest in bridges and roads, we will find ourselves back to where we were at the beginning of this pandemic, which is in a dreadful place. So I think policymakers need to wrap their heads around the fact that human services are part of the infrastructure of a country. I think at a practice level, we've learned a lot about infection control. I think we've learned a lot about just the physical design of care settings. And I think we've learned a lot about the workforce and the workforce that we need. And I think as providers, we need to begin to invest in do infection control differently. There was no way for us to know that our current practices of infection control would not be able to mitigate against this virus. We now know that. So now we need to take some important and concrete steps towards making sure that you know, we're doing everything we can to make the physical environment one that is, is as safe as possible. Recruiting and retaining the long-term care workforce is a major challenge right now for long-term care homes in Ontario. Katie understands what's happening around the globe, and I wanted her thoughts on Ontario's plans to attract and train more people for our long-term care sector and our seniors' care sector. You've touched a bit on the on the workforce, and I, I know we had the privilege of co-hosting uh, Global Aging Network Summit on on the workforce prior to the pandemic. And I know that the workforce issues are global workforce issues. We know that our workforce doesn't feel valued. Uh, We know that prior to the pandemic, they felt that the work was very heavy. You have staff members, team members who are moving, working across different organizations and sites and have multiple jobs. And we are relying on on a fixed pool of resources and the stigma is worse. You know, we're talking a lot about the burnout. Uh, we are hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging registered staff, nurses and registered practical nurses. Uh, our, our personal care workers are, are leaving our sector. Many are retiring. They've had enough. They're going into other sectors. Some are going to hospitals and some are going to vaccine clinics. But the morale, which was bad before, is worse. There is no trust and confidence in our senior services, especially in Canada and our long-term care sector, and as most especially in Ontario. I know you've been thinking about this for a long time. You, you know, we have uh, the population over 80 in, in Ontario alone will double in the next 13 years. Our government in the province of Ontario is making lots of investments and announcements about rebuilding the workforce and for 16,000 personal care worker positions have have been funded for the province for this year alone. But I'm not sure that just getting people into the school programs, the post-secondary programs for training will be enough. How are we going to rebuild our workforce when people don't want to work in this sector? 
We need to reinvent these jobs. We need to make them considered a valuable and valued career choice for people. So instead of thinking about just more of the same, I think we really need to think about what would it take to make this a career choice? Is it more of a universal worker model where people are trained to do any one of a number of things? Is it very distinguished career paths? So people come in maybe as a CNA and they move very quickly and maybe they don't want to be a nurse. Maybe they want to be a social worker. Maybe they want to be a therapist. But how do you, we just, I think it's just, a time, this is a time for us to rethink what these jobs are, how we make them valuable. And I think part of that is also, it's a management function as well. People leave jobs because of their managers. And so if we're not also reinventing the job of the manager, retraining managers to create healthy workplace cultures, we're not going to keep people. People will come and then they will leave. And in, in many countries, they're leaving not just for jobs in hospitals, they're leaving for jobs working in an Amazon warehouse or working in, a, in, a, in fast food. It's not as hard. They get paid probably about the same. And at, at the end result is that we don't have a support system for our older population. So how do we just start to rethink this job altogether? It really is a time of disruption that the normal career paths have just imploded. So you noted we, we too are losing to uh, companies like Amazon, to, to grocery stores, to airports, to school boards. And we're also losing frontline staff to film and television. And apparently you, you can often get a car as part of that uh, employment package. So your normal healthcare workforce pathway has completely changed now too. And as we think about recovery over the next three to five years, as we think about the the fact in our, our baby boom generation is 75 now, the first front of that generation is about to, is, is hitting our aging care sector. I'm not sensing a lot of urgency uh, among decision makers and policymakers uh, anywhere. You've got a global lens on this. Are, are you seeing any countries that are stepping up to address this issue? I'm certainly seeing a lot more attention being paid to what distinguishes a job in aging services from other healthcare jobs. And for me, the, the key distinguishing attribute is that this is really about building relationships. It's at the end, if you talk to a direct care worker who works in, for example, a care home, they will talk about my residence. Care homes are homes. People live in them over a period of time, unlike a hospital where you're in and out in a couple of days. And the value of that relationship is what makes it work and makes it work so well. So how do we talk about that in a way that will attract people to this field? Um, and I think that's what we need to think about. It's sort of the intangibles in many ways that we need to lift up as much as we possibly can. I saw a wonderful video from Australia, which I will try to send you a link to, which had a video of a chef working in a restaurant. And she sort of paused as she's putting food on a, on a plate that was then going to take it, be taken out to a customer. And she said, someday I'd love to be able to meet the people that I'm feeding. And the video was really about then leave the restaurant and go work in aging services. And you will not only meet the people, you'll get to know them well, you'll know their children, 
I thought that was just a wonderful way to describe the work that our, certainly our members do around the world. That's a wonderful story. And I know Australia is doing a, uh, really being very purposeful now in trying to rally a new workforce and bring trust and confidence back into these rules. So it is, it's certainly a country that we're looking to as we sort of build out our policy solutions and try to encourage our leaders to lead um, instead of pointing fingers. There, there's been a lot of finger pointing, unfortunately. And our sense is that people want to work for things instead of we've been fighting the virus for almost two years. So let's let's work for our, the people who are aging in our communities. It really makes a difference. I think so too. I think trust is an interesting notion because I think, you know, trust happens at a community level. It happens at the local level. It's the trust that in, people in a community have with the provider in that community or the institution in that community. And that's where trust is built. But I also think you need a government that and a set of policies that's going to reinforce that. Yeah, we're, we're certainly trying to move away and encourage our government to focus on quality, on outcomes, to focus on the people and the relationships, as opposed to just compliance and rules. How do we empower people to innovate, to to dare to dream, and, and how do we ensure that we're respecting the rights of the people we're serving, as well as recognizing the pride that our, our frontline staff take in what they do and the people they care for. One of the things, as, as you know, Katie, in Ontario, we have a large number of institutional long-term care beds. We talk a lot about long-term care beds in our province. And uh, our government, prior to the pandemic, had made a commitment to rebuild the old homes. And and fortunate we saw in our province untold deaths, over 4,000 deaths in in our sector, where old buildings really played a factor old buildings with three and four people in a room, shared washrooms, very small space where you can't get six feet apart. It's just not possible because they weren't built that way. And that really took a toll. And we now today have 40,000 people on a wait list in our province for these long-term care spaces. We now have a hospital surge in our province that thankfully is stabilizing, uh, but we have thousands of people in hospital who need to be transferred out of hospital and we have no room. We're we're really uh, struggling to accommodate these individuals and they have a higher level of acuity. I heard a story today where someone had been in hospital for 500 days waiting for a placement. And when he transferred into a new care home, uh, they actually played music and let him dance because he hadn't danced in 500 days. Oh, my word. So we're bringing some humanity back into this. But one of the things that's really happened as a result of the devastation in Ontario's long-term care homes really has been a different discussion. And I know uh, around the world, and I I know among your members, it's just not about the care home, but thinking more about what is that continuum of care from from independence in the home to home care to to day programming to assisted living retirement. And uh, would would welcome your thoughts on knowing what you know about about Ontario uh, and what we've been through but also how things function across the United States, but in other countries. What advice do you have for us as we begin to to reimagine how we care for an aging population? 
I think that there is going to be, and there already has started to be, a pretty aggressive movement away from care homes and into providing more and more support to people in their own homes. It's, you know, every survey I've ever seen of older adults and their preferences as they age, it's to age in their own home or community for as long as they possibly can. So I think what's happened, at least in a number of countries, including the U.S., is that the the population of who is served in a care home has sort of exponentially expanded. And I think what we'll see is that we will have much clearer definitions of what's the purpose of a care home. What are the circumstances under which somebody is best served in a care home versus where are the other settings that may be less restrictive? They may have less health care, but still have some health care. Maybe it's to cover a couple of activities of daily living. Where else can people be served? I think consumers will demand it. I think certainly in the U.S. and in Europe, the home health Providers are doing more and more care in people's homes. You can actually get skilled nursing in the home. There are now experiments in the U.S. with hospital at home and actually providing emergency room services to people in their home so they don't have to go to the emergency room. So I think that there will be that reinvention, as you suggest, where we really do look hard at what is best provided in what setting for what circumstances, instead of having care homes be the default. Now in the U.S., there are more people being discharged from the hospital back to their homes than to a nursing home. And so that puts the burden on the home health agencies to figure out, okay, how are we going to safely support people? I will say that this workforce challenge is going to challenge every part of the continuum, no matter where it is, whether it's an adult day program whether it's a home health agency, whether it's uh, an assisted living or personal care home. We are a people business. We rely on people to deliver care and services. That's one of the things that we've actually been talking about. Could we use this health human resources crisis that, that we are facing? This is a cliff we're looking at to help us to reimagine, to really think about how we use those scarce resources, how technology can be used uh, more effectively and more efficiently. And uh, I know through the pandemic in Ontario, we've moved to more virtual supports. We have a long-term care plus where our homes can access hospital specialists just by calling a 1-800 number and they can get help in the home. But, you know, really stepping back to build out a system around people because what we've we've experienced is long-term care in Ontario, we got prioritized in the first wave once it was determined that we weren't going to have a hospital surge in our province. And then all of the resources went to long-term care. And then we stabilized over the summer. And then as we got into fall, suddenly we started to face hospital surge. And then we saw the migration of supports that had stabilized the home move over to the hospital sector. And while at at the same time devastating our home care, home and community care sectors. So because we moved to single sites for those employees who had been working in multiple sites, they left our home care sector. They, some came into long-term care, but a lot went into other settings as well. And then when we really had the hospital surge in Ontario at the beginning of January, just as we were 
ramping out vaccines, there was this giant sucking sound of all of these people in long-term care now moving to the hospital sector. So we have this fixed pool. So how do we, instead of saying this is home care over here, home and community care, this is where mental health is, this is this long-term care care home model, and and seeing them as discrete pieces, how do we think about that more as a blended continuum of care around what the people actually feel that they need and want? I think increasingly in the U.S. and actually I think in the U.K. there's a there's a movement towards individual providers providing a greater breadth of services and supports so that there is that natural fluidity among services and supports rather than people being in sort of their individual silos. I often say that form follows finance. And and so often the way we finance these services drives the silos that we've created for ourselves. So if we had, for example, a universal payment for long-term care, regardless of where what setting it was in, perhaps it's a payment to the consumer that they buy the services that they want uh, rather than a payment to the provider. Radical thought. But just as you think about how do you really break apart what we've got here and what we've created, and we've created it based on structures tied to more often than not to financing and to regulation. No, absolutely. You know, I love that question. And, and I do believe that we're going to have to think about some more radical approaches on, on how we're going to drive the change. We do tend to default back to what is and try to renovate I, I reflected sort of like a, a 1970s renovation on a house where you kind of add on an, an addition that doesn't quite fit. <laughs> Whereas today, people raise the houses and they build new and they create new foundations. I, I, I'm optimistic that this is that moment where we we can build the new foundations out. And and I would argue in, in closing, Katie, the discussions that, that we have with our global aging partners gives me great hope that we all don't need to try to recreate the wheel, that we can learn from one another and share those practices, e- even to the point, quite honestly, Katie, where perhaps you can actually do shared care, virtual shared care globally. You don't necessarily have to hoard your resources within your country. And then what does that look like from a policy and a regulatory and a funding perspective? I love that idea. And I think just our our foray into greater use of telehealth just opens the world of possibilities towards something like that. Telehealth doesn't need to be restricted to a town or a city or a, or a province. You know, suppose you're doing telehealth across the ocean. Yeah, I, I am very optimistic. I am too. And again, thank you very much for, for making time for us, for sharing your thoughts and reflections, for your spirit of collaboration, and, and uh, more importantly, for your leadership and leading and showing the way. We really appreciate this. Thank you, Donna. It's a pleasure and a privilege to work with you. So key takeaways from our discussion today with Katie. First, Katie has seen the same situation play out globally that we've seen in Ontario. The situation where long-term care needs both an investment in new physical infrastructure and in our long-term care workforce. Those who work in long-term care and seniors care need more career flexibility than current roles offer. And our society needs to make sure that those who work in supporting our seniors feel valued. And that's going to mean 
getting rid of the stigma of working in long-term care and supporting our seniors. Second, Katie also shared how other countries are trying to figure out how to keep people at home for longer, aging in place, by trying a different range of support services. It's about building the system around the needs of the individuals rather than the services or the siloed structures of the healthcare system. I really liked Katie's language that form follows finance and that funding systems drive a lot of the systems that we have now in place. Her global perspective helped to highlight that we're going to need some more radical approaches in order to make the changes we need. But it also highlighted that Ontario is not alone. Countries around the world are grappling with exactly the same issues, and we have a unique opportunity to learn from each other. Thank you for listening to Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate the show five stars, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about Katie, you can follow her on Twitter at Smith Sloan at S-M-I-T-H-S-L-O-A-N or connect with her on LinkedIn by searching Katie Smith Sloan. Our next episode will be airing on July 20th. Until next time, I'm your host, Donna Duncan. Stay well.